Okay, so we are in the Gospel of Matthew. I'll open up your Bibles, please. If you don't have one, raise your hand. One of the lovely ladies in the back will gallivant over to you, whatever that looks like. And uh, as they gallivant, uh, that's apparently a gallivant right there. Uh, see, this is the part that's fun. Each, each day we'll come up with a new word just to make them do it. Uh, John chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9. We did travel all over California, uh, at least up through to the central coast. But sincerely, there is no place like home. It is really, really nice to be home. Matthew 9, starting in verse 14, if you'd read along with me, please. We read, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put a new, put new wine, new wine, sorry, into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, on this beautiful but cold Sunday morning in January 2016, my first opportunity to share on a Sunday or uh, any time really with our fellowship in 2016, I first of all want to thank you for the faithfulness of the men who are committed to this fellowship who have served this precious flock in my absence. I thank you for the gifts you've given them of teaching, of exhortation. Lord, I thank you for the pastor's hearts you've given them and for the way, Lord, that you've shown yourself beautiful. Now, Lord, I pray in this time, let your word burst open and come alive. Let us understand it. Let us get it. May your word be manifest. And Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak a word to every one of us specifically today. And I pray, Lord, that you would do your work now. I pray, Lord, that you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit, that you would be seen and come upon me, that you would use me as your tool. That's all. But to you be all the glory. So, Lord, now have your way. We commit this time to you, Lord. Redeem every second, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. 
In Matthew 8 and 9, we have the most concentrated section of miracles in the entire book of Matthew. To be honest, more sort of practical miracles, if you will, take place in chapters 8 and 9 than for the most part the rest of the book combined. Chapter 9 starts with a paralytic being plopped into the presence of the religious leaders. And, of course, Jesus. Luke tells us that the power of God was present to make them whole, to heal them. Them being the religious leaders, by the way, as well as this man. And the paralytic, we read, arises. He arises by faith and he is made whole. From there, then, the tax collector, Jesus, goes and asks to follow. And he, then we read the same word, arises to follow Jesus. And I start to wonder if Matthew is actually trying to give us some form, something thematic. And I get it. There was a man who was paralyzed and Jesus addresses the sin. And he says, your sins are forgiven you. And in that, then the man is shown the power of that by the paralysis is removed and he is now walking. He arises to walk. And I kind of get the idea that Matthew, the writer of this book now giving us this information, shows us that he himself was the same, perhaps for different reasons. Could he be as well in the sight of God paralyzed? Whatever bitterness or disdain that caused him to turn coat is now abandoned to arise as well and follow, be made whole. And whilst everyone else is arising, the paralytic, the tax collector, well, the Pharisees, on the other hand, are laying down the law. And they refuse to rise and follow this Jesus to be made whole, And they traded that in instead for their lifeless law of tradition over truth. It's inflexible and impersonal and a burden so heavy that it would pin you to the floor and leave you, if you will, paralyzed like them by pride. The pride of their performance, if you will. But Jesus comes in like a tornado and he tears away the rickety old shack of religion to expose a foundation that is necessary of faith and the rebar of a relationship that will hold the building in place. Loving him, well, that's what he really wants. So in these few short verses here, I kind of get the idea that it kind of hits this apex in these verses. Because then after that, we're going to see two groups and two groups and two groups. And I think there's a comparison there of why this has to be a new thing. It starts with this in verse 14. It says that the disciples of John came to him. Now, we'll read, by the way, in Mark that it's also the Pharisees. They also were fasting. In Luke 5.33, it'll tell us that why do you fast or why do you feast while all of us fast? Or if you will, but yours, your disciples eat and drink. Now, very different approach, by the way, than the religious leaders, if you remember, who kind of went after the disciples, <coughs> excuse me, while Matthew is, is holding a feast in Jesus' honor. And they ask, what is he doing eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, they don't ask Jesus directly. And by the way, anybody who's looking to cause division, anybody who's looking to cause trouble and to find fault, to be critical versus to be questioning, will always go to someone but the source. And they will go and stir this up. And you'll see that here. They go to the disciples, the students, and they ask, so why does your 
Master, do it this way. Now, Jesus, God, grace in this, doesn't allow his disciples to respond. He cuts in right away. And if you will, in a loose paraphrase, says, what do you think? Uh, do you think I'm, well, I'm hobnobbing here? Do you think that I'm networking? Now, understand that, that the tax collectors were wealthy men. So from a religious leader's perspective, there was something to be gained in their source of income. But Jesus says, these are not my supporters. These are my patients. He's speaking as a doctor. And in all of this, for those that were in need of being made whole, the offer was to them. The religious leaders as well needing to be made whole. But to be honest, they really couldn't see the need. So from that now, we get to this. And the disciples of John, and by the way, some of the Pharisees as well, come to him. And the question is a simple one. Why do we all fast and you don't? Now, notice they do come directly to him, though. Now, that bids the question, first of all, well, what about this fasting thing? Some of you may have heard that that's sort of a Christian or a religious thing to do, fasting. Does that mean we don't eat? Now, listen, I love to eat. And I'm sure it's very evident. Not just at the table, but the fact that I can get around the table. But the question really is then, is it something that really pertains to me anymore? Is it something that's really important? Well, let me make, it, make, let me make this clear first. Jesus himself fasted. Matter of fact, we read that he fasted for 40 days and nights while he was being tempted. Matthew 4, 2 has already made that clear. Jesus, by the way, also expected his disciples to fast because he says in Matthew 6, I believe it's verse 16, he says, when you fast. He expected his disciples to be people who would fast. He does, however, though, notice that fasting can be a hypocritical thing because the remainder of that particular statement in Matthew 6, 16 says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. And you realize what fasting had become was a ritual rung to righteousness in the sight of the religious leaders. What they were doing is they were kind of fasting so they could boast about it. As a matter of fact, in Luke 18, 12, Jesus tells us about two people who go to pray. One is a tax collector, much like Matthew, and one was a publican, much like the Pharisees. And, and this religious leader comes up and he says, well, and actually the tax collector is the publican. The other one's the religious leader. And he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Which, by the way, was a very common prayer for a religious leader. And he usually thanked God that he was not a woman or a Gentile or a dog. But he says, let me tell you why. I am thankful that I'm not like that man. I give, I tithe, and I fast twice a week. Which, by the way, was common for a Pharisee. These were the things that he was standing on. And please understand that what the Pharisee was saying in the simplest sense was these are the things I've performed that puts God at my debt to perform something that I actually offer or that I demand or command or claim, if you will. Anytime you think that you've done something that puts God at your debt, you've done it wrong. But we can still do that as Christians. Say, I've fasted for days. I did the 40-day fast, which, needless to say, you obviously eat something in there. Or I've prayed like this. Or I've given this. Why are things still rough? As if somehow our emotion somehow would lead God to have to react. 
Jesus tells us that fasting in and of itself is not enough. Fasting has to be done properly, and fasting cannot be done like a hypocrite, where it's done for show. What's this? Oh, they they disfigure their faces, and they walk around, if you will, moaning that they would appear to men to be fasting. He says, well, they have all the reward that they're looking for, because their performance has already bid them some form of applause from the crowd that they're performing for. God's like, but they're not doing it for me. He says, don't do that. But Jesus taught, by the way, that we would fast. As a matter of fact, we see that here. He tells us in Matthew 17, and we'll get there soon, about a person that was possessed. And he says, this particular kind of demon doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. Now, that's going to be a fun text when we get there. But what's clear is fasting would be part of that. There were some within Scripture that ministered to the Lord and fasted. For instance, when Jesus was a baby, a woman, a prophetess named Anna, we would minister to the Lord and fasted in Luke 2.37. We read about the Antioch elders. If you remember when... Matt, when Saul and Barnabas were called and launched out, that they were praying and fasting. So it wasn't just something that ended with Jesus. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes about married people. He says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another, the husband and the wife, to each other, except for consent for a specific time that you may give yourselves to prayer and fasting, or fasting and prayer. And come together then that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, you know, I get the idea of it. It's like, look, at, if you guys are going to stay away from each other, then don't eat. Because sooner or later, you're going to want to come together just so you can eat. In all of that, though, what's clear is, is that God did speak about fasting. But what in the world is it? I mean, before we dive into this a little bit, well, what does Scripture say about fasting? Uh, you know, other than the fact that Jesus tells us that we would do it, clearly here. Well, let me sort of lay out a couple ideas here. And there's sort of four basic reasons why people fast. In the simplest sense, in Scripture, fasting just means you don't eat. But there's a much more attached to that. See, understand, dinner specifically, by the way, supper for the Middle Easterner was your entertainment as well. It was a time of fellowship. It was a time, it basically would be a time where whatever we did for entertainment, we did. And we recognize there are certain reasons why you don't do that. Now, you can certainly fast from other things than food. Matter of fact, often the things we would fast from other than food are things we probably shouldn't even be doing at all. But let me give you four basic things which we kind of see in Scripture about, about four different reasons why people fast according to Scripture. The first, by the way, is simple, and that's pain. For instance, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, David, though Saul was his enemy... The incumbent king. His son was David's best friend. And Saul and Saul's son Jonathan were both killed in a battle in Mount Gilboa. David fasts. He wept and fasted. You know why he didn't eat? Because he was in pain. Have you ever had it where you just, you've had a really horrible time in whatever way something horrible has happened? You just don't want to eat. Now that isn't a religious observance. In a case like that, you, you kind of just don't want to eat because you're just kind of not hungry. Your emotions have filled your stomach with grief, and that's enough. We'll see that, by the way, and some of these kind of play into more than one. The second, by the way, besides pain, is perspective. There are times where we don't really understand what to do. We're looking for clarity on what to do. And I'd like to say that in any major decision that you have to make in life, I recommend you do this. Before I... I almost said audition. How strange is that? Proposed to my wife. Uh, there was no audition in that. I think I'd already passed that. I fasted once a week for several months. And I remember that just because I knew that it wasn't just about whether to propose. I knew that that was going to happen. Ultimately, it was when. The sad part was that it was always the same day of the week 
And I would always drive by the same place that made the most amazing carne asada burritos. And I could smell them. Now, maybe they made them every day, but that specific day I could smell it from miles away. And I always, for whatever reason, had to drive back that place. And when I was finished with my fast, I would always go there, which was kind of a really dumb thing, by the way. But, you know, when you're looking for perspective, for instance, in Second Chronicles 20, verse 3, you know, Jehoshaphat's in a very rough position because the people of the east, Mount Seir, the Edomites, they've all gathered together to fight, and he doesn't really know what to do. He is clearly outnumbered. He's outgunned. He's clearly outclassed. These guys are professional fighters, and he is not. So what does he do? He gets on his face and he fasts before the Lord. He's like, God, I don't know what to do. As a matter of fact, that's what he would say. He goes, well, we have a clear appraisal of them. But our eyes are on you. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah goes and takes a look at the wall, or when he discovers, actually, he's told it first, about the, the condition of Jerusalem. What we read in verse 4 is that when he heard those words, he sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, clearly, we could say that was out of pain, but it was also out of perspective because ultimately what he'd have to do was approach the king and tell him, can I go there? Remember again in Acts chapter 14, when they appointed elders in every church, they prayed with fasting. They didn't want to get that wrong. So maybe you're in a position where you're really kind of trying to figure something out. Well, I remind you, when they fasted, they fasted from their entertainment. And they fasted from their food. But they did that. Listen, they never just removed, they replaced. Notice it says fasting and praying. The two things we find often is the moment you start, you stop eating material food, you start eating the Word of God. And the moment you stop being entertained and taking in the media and the data from whatever the thing is that entertains you, you start taking in instead the conversation in prayer with the living God. So there's prayer. I should say this. There's pain. There's perspective. The third is for purity. Now, the reason often this is, is to be honest, out of repentance. And that could lead into a couple of the others as well. I mean, number one, it's the issue that you're in pain. You're not just upset at the consequence of your sin, but you're actually at the point where you really want to see change. Now, there's a very different thing here, by the way. We'll find this, by the way, in Jeremiah 36, when they discover the scroll that was in the temple after cleaning things out. Realized it. But the most clear example, by the way, is in Jonah chapter 3, when Jonah himself shows up at Nineveh, says, 40 days and you're toast, and the people so freak out over it that they proclaim a fast. God says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. There's our repenting with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Now, let me kind of make this clear before we kind of go to the last of them. Understand this, and this is a really big deal because we're all going to find ourselves in this place and we're all going to encounter people that have this situation. And the question is, when a person is in that situation of, of really being confronted with sin, whatever that situation is, now whether that's, you're kind of just, the Holy Spirit is making you aware that you're doing something or thinking something or feeling something you really shouldn't. What well, someone's approached you where you have the responsibility of approaching somebody else because clearly what they're doing is really not lining up with Scripture or what really should be the lifestyle of a person who professes to follow Christ. And the person says, okay, I'll stop. Please understand, there's a big difference between repenting 
and relenting. Relenting means you stop. But John the Baptist didn't tell people to relent. He told them to repent. The prodigal son, do you remember the story? The prodigal son took his father's inheritance before his father was dead, which shows he was more interested in the money than he was with the father. And he took off. And what he did is he took that money then, and he went and he lived a prodigal life. Now, prodigal really just kind of means living janky. It isn't like the prodigal son. Like he, the one he went home, he was no longer the prodigal son. But while he was there, he spent his money on prostitutes and on alcohol and other things that someone would in a situation like that. He lived a prodigal life. Thus, they call him the prodigal son. The moment his money ran out, he relented. He couldn't buy the party anymore. He couldn't get the prostitute anymore. He didn't have the money. He stopped doing it. But that didn't end the story. What makes the story so good is because the the moment that boy stopped doing that stuff, he relented. But the moment he went home, he repented. And there's the difference. Repentance demands for us to do more than stop. It demands for us to turn around and go back where we came from. And there's the point. Now, you're probably aware of this. If you're driving forward to go in reverse, you can't just go in reverse. You've got to stop first or you blow your transmission. And in the same way, maybe you're dealing with something or someone says, hey, look, at I'm having a problem with this. I want to stop. The question isn't, well, are you willing to relent? The question is, are you willing to repent? And to repent means I know that this is a lot more than just stopping doing this thing. I need to now turn around and go back to the place that I want or go to take the right turn where I've been going left. And the idea of fasting is a really big issue for this. Because what you find in a lot of times is that sometimes you do something and it just gets on top of you. I mean, you've been doing it and all of a sudden now it's sort of dictating your appetite. And that's a rough thing. Because at this point now what's clear is you're not in control of your appetites. Your appetites are in control of you. So whether that's drinking or gossip or pornography, I mean, these things, by the way, I've never seen anyone whose life's gotten better from pornography. Or drinking, for that matter. It isn't like, you know, now my family hated me and I was poor and all that. Then I started drinking and now everybody loves me and my family's, and I, you know, this is a, you don't hear stories like that because they don't happen. But something starts getting on top of you. What do you do? You take a base appetite like eating and you get it under you in repentance. And so what we find with a lot of these cases is the seeking of purity was being serious to do, not just stop doing it, but to go, how far do I have to go to get away from this thing? Because I have very little to no confidence in a person who just relents. There's got to be some form of repentance. Because if you don't see the repentance, what you'll find is, is then you have a direct route to go right back, stopping the trajectory you're on. You're still facing that direction for the next step you take. And so what happens, and look, at if that's you right now, and I'm not here to call you out, the Lord can do that. The point is, if that's what you're struggling with right now, and that could be bitterness, that could be anger, that could be lust, that can be whatever, you know what it is. Hey, let's face it, even things like, like insecurity, that's a weird sense of pride, because the whole focus is on you. What do you do? I suggest take a day, and the things that you would normally do, Get out of food and get out of your entertainment. And get in the Word. Get in prayer. And get alone with the Lord. Watch what He does. So there is out of pain. There is out of perspective. There is out of purity. And then finally, it's out of prayer. 
where we're seeking the Lord so that we make sure we... And again, that's back to this issue of perspective. David, for instance, if you remember, when having this adulterous uh, relationship with Bathsheba, she becomes pregnant. God says the child will die, and he fasted before that. He was entreating the Lord. But once the baby was clearly dead, David started to eat. And they started to freak out. They're like, wow, I would have thought this, this news would be worse for you. When David's like, look at it. Before he was dead, there was still hope. But now, what in the world can I do? And I love that David says, look at I can't see him here, but he'll see me there. David knew of an afterlife, and he knew he would see his child there. <laughs> Daniel, by the way, makes request of the Lord in Daniel 9.3 with fasting and prayers. Ezekiel, by the way, in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, not Ezekiel, Ezra. Chapter 8, verse 23, we read for them as they discover, by the way, how they have been disobedient to the word. They fasted and entreated the Lord. And he answered the prayer. So if I could put it in the simplest sense, what do they all seem to have in common? A pursuit of the preeminence of God's presence. That's really what they all have in common. What I really want is the power of God's spirit to overrule me in every way. That's what I really want. So if I understand that, I understand why John the Baptist would have people fasting. His disciples. Because remember John the Baptist's message was one simple word. Repent. Remember, not relent. As not just stop doing bad stuff. Turn around because the Lord's coming. And this isn't just about stop doing bad things. Prepare your heart for the Lord. I understand that. The Pharisees, who were those initially the back to the Bible movement against the Sadducees, who were just a bunch of liberal naturalists who didn't really even believe in anything they couldn't see, were like, well, we're going to go back to the, to the Torah. But they swung way beyond that to the traditions. And often that tends to be the case. One extreme tends to breed the other extreme. What we find in a case like that is that they fasted, but they fasted for a personal righteousness. So they had something to brag about, like that man that stood before God and said, I fast twice a week. So understand, for John, he's going to, you know, you want your hearts right for God. You want this to be ready. Let's repent. Let's fast. Let's make sure that we're ready in every possible way, because we want to make sure that our repentance is sincere. And then you have the Pharisees who were doing it, by the way, because it was required of them. Now, if you're going to be in the club, you got to do it. Scripturally, God required men to feast at least three weeks of the year for the feasts of Passover, of Pentecost, and of Tabernacles. They were all a week long. Actually, to be honest, Tabernacles was actually eight days. There was only one day a year that you were required to fast. And that day was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. What's the difference between that day and the others? Your focus was on your sin. And you afflicted your soul for it. But after the atonement was given, and it was clear that God had accepted it, we feasted. We feasted to celebrate the forgiveness of sins. See, the moment you focus on your sin, it's going to be a thing where you're going to be fasting. But the moment your heart is right with the presence of God, it's going to be a feast. And what God really wants is us to feast with him. He doesn't want us in that place like that because he wants to take away our sin and leave, us, leave it so far away from us that we can't find it. So they come and they're like, so what's the deal? How come you guys, I mean, I remember, here's Jesus. He's sitting at Matthew's house. 
He's feasting. His disciples are feasting. And the disciples of John, they have a genuine question. So with that in mind, Jesus' response, by the way, and I do really like this, his response is, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn? Notice, by the way, Jesus compares fasting with mourning. Did you notice that? He looked at fasting and it wasn't just like this was just something you did and you were cute with it. This was something you did and you mourned. And he said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Oh, don't miss that. Because then he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. This is, by the way, the first time in the New Testament that Jesus actually predicts his crucifixion. He starts talking about his death. And the word taken away is actually an interesting word. The word is apero. Try that. Apero. Apero, nice. Apo means out of. Ero is the Greek word for air. So it literally means out of the air. How's that for a fun word? Matter of fact, the word for amidst is the word meta. Right? Like metamorphosis. What do you call something that goes amidst the air? Meta air. We get the word meteor from it. That's where it comes from. And he looks and he says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now, hold on a second. Notice that the idea is, is that when you're with Jesus and you are there consumed in his presence, there's no cause to fast. It's cause to feast. But when he when there's a sense of his awayness, it's a perfect time to fast. Could you imagine if we crave Jesus more than we did food? We crave Jesus more than we did. Could you imagine fasting from Facebook? Could you imagine fasting from screens altogether? My daughter has done that, I think, one month of the year, every year until this last one, because then she got a boyfriend that's long distance. I think that, I don't know how she works that. But the idea of going, you know what? I don't want anything to get between us, Jesus. And I want to hurt more from not being close to you than I would from not eating, than I would from not being on Facebook, than I would from not being in communication with all of my peeps. <coughs> and there's the idea. But Jesus lays out, and I remind you, they're playing this ritual thing, and Jesus is not going to start developing the issue of the relationship. Don't miss this. Because what Jesus says is, let's get back to what this is really about. And he takes the most intimate of relationships. And that is the difference between a husband and a wife. Now, this is throughout Scripture, by the way. How can I fast when I'm intimate with Jesus? It's that place that I find myself in abundance. It is in the awareness of his awareness that I fast. Now, let's face it, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. But you can know what it's like to be in the same room with somebody and not be tight with them. And all of a sudden, the room becomes even as cold as this room, if you will, because of it. Now listen. Throughout Scripture, God has made himself clear that this is who he wishes to be. Isaiah 54, 5 tells us, Your maker is your husband. <coughs> the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, Moreover, the Lord came to me and said, Go out and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you in the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And he'll say, Hey, I give you everything. Why did you go after idols? That's the point of Jeremiah 2. And then in Jeremiah 3, he will say in verse 14, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I'm married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. 
And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And Hosea, if you remember the story where the prophet marries a prostitute, gives her every reason, reason to stay, but she leaves anyways and runs out to her whoring, and then he has to buy her back for half the price of a slave. And God says, now you know how I feel. But in Hosea 2.19 it says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And Isaiah 64, as he brings things close to an end there, he says, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephizbah. Who would like to be named that? Could you imagine Joe being called Hephizbah? Hi, what, how, what's the short for that? Hefi? Hefer? Hefizba, by the way, though, means my delight is in her. It's a much prettier meaning than it is probably the way it sounds. And your land will be called Baula. And Baula, by the way, means married. For the Lord delights in you and you shall be married. Now, hear me on this. Every Middle Eastern marriage has three basic parts to it. And if you realize, all of this scripture leads us to this. <clears throat> The first, by the way, is called the Shidukun. The Shidukin, if you will, is the arrangement. Where the Shidkan, or the matchmaker, sits with the Shajbanin, who is the friend of the bridegroom. And they arrange a deal, often, by the way, before birth. Now, please hear me on this, because this should shed a light to a lot of the people who really start hammering out some of their sort of doctrinal bends on things <coughs> that often can separate Christians. Hear me on this. A father and another father can sit and arrange a marriage, but the daughter still has a say when it comes down to it. But the first thing is an arrangement. And that arrangement, again, can be before you were born. Now, that's interesting, by the way, because if you read Ephesians 1, it tells us that we were predestined for adoption before the foundation of the world. God had already had that plan. Now, understand, for every bride to marry into a family, she gets adopted into the family. She carries their family name now. I mean, today we often have that in much of our Western culture. A girl marries and she winds up propagating for the family name of the man she marries. Be careful. I mean, I've known people that have had such crazy names. I'm like, that girl really must have loved him. With a name like that. I mean, there are people, you know, there's a, one of the American football players uh, was for the Chicago Bears. There's a guy named Dick Butkiss. You got to love a man to marry a man with a last name Butkiss. And the man's been married and continues to be. But you get adoption. Listen, there was a preordination there. In other words, there was an arrangement before you were born that you, were, you had the opportunity to become a part of the family through betrothal. So the first part says Shidokin. Now, by the way, again, that is often arranged by a man named the Shoshbanin or the friend of the bridegroom. Why is that important? Because that's exactly what John the Baptist said. The very guy who's asking this or sent to be asking about this in John chapter 3, verse 29, it says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And of course, then he ultimately say, He must increase and I must decrease. But he calls himself the Shashbanim, the person who's helping with the arrangement. Now, ultimately, what happens at that point is, you know this thing is in the works. But that doesn't mean the girl is going to say yes. That doesn't even mean the boy really wants her. Because ultimately, they're going to get to a point where that decision needs to be made. 
And that decision needs to be made by the two of them. So we go from the Shedokim to the second part. And the second part, by the way, is the Erusin. And the Erusin means the engagement. Now this is a public ceremony. Whereas many of you are familiar with the fact that they go into Ketubah, that's basically a, a, an archway, if you will. And there he offers her a cup. That's a cup of a covenant. And he offers him his pleasure, his provision, his protection, and his presence. She offers in return her purity. He goes then as he offers that as she drinks, he can take that. And there is a celebration that takes place because of this. Now understand, it was different by levels of people. The average ordinary townsfolk, they got a day of celebration for it. If you were a priest, you got two days. But the highest of it, if you were a king, you would have three. Which is interesting, because as I think about Jesus' public ministry, it was three years. And what's interesting is, is that this whole thing plays out, John talking about the friend of the bridegroom, but that's clearly because once that is done, he publicly declares, I go to prepare a place for you. That's exactly what he says in John 14 to his disciples. I get the idea of what Jesus did, if you will, in the Gospels, what he did by coming to earth is he came to betroth himself to us. There's the beauty in it. So there's our second part. Now understand with that, the groom has to make clear that he agrees with this agreement, but then the bride-to-be has to say yes. She has to drink of the cup. Which is interesting, because as I get back into this text, Jesus is going to say, how can the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom, when the bridegroom is there? And understand, get what that's saying. He's going, we're in that second portion here. We're in that time of Erosin. We're getting engaged here. This is a time of celebrating. This isn't a time of fasting. I'm here. And I love that this is the case because what Jesus tells us is that he wants us for more than service. He wants us for more than worship. What he wants us for is intimacy because that's the purpose of the groom. He looks and he says, yes, that's the one I want. And he looks at you and that's his point. He wants you, beloved. He wants you. He doesn't just need you because God doesn't need us, but he wants us. Warts and all. Faults and all. But for that to happen, there are some choices the groom has to make. In order for that to happen, she brings a dowry to the table. In other words, the father of the girl usually brings something to sweeten the deal. One of the things she often brings is ten coins. She wears them around her belly. Though you can get the idea why then in Luke 15, when a girl loses one of her ten coins, she sweeps the whole house to find it. That's her dowry. Sometimes it's some material good. For instance, I'm believing that Mary Magdalene, that the whole alabaster jar was her dowry. Which, by the way, meant that, the, that she wasn't going to be married after this point unless somebody was going to marry her for no dowry. Now, what if she was in a bad place? Like Ruth. What could Ruth's dowry be? She was a foreigner. But she was, in essence, adopted by her mother-in-law. Consider that. Because in a case like that, the groom can go beyond that, which is much more than a transaction, but now it's an action of love. And in a case like that, he has three different things he can do for her. One of the things is he can serve her. We get that, of course, from Jacob. Now, ultimately, they half the time that Jacob had worked for one, and they go to three and a half years. Interesting, again, that's Jesus' ministry. The second thing they can do is that they can actually redeem you out of your ignominy. In other words, out of your dishonor. Like, for instance, in the story of Ruth. Which, by the way, Jesus did that as well. The third is he could restore you which Jesus also did. In other words, what Jesus did to purchase his bride was he didn't just do one of the things, but he did all of the things that would take to get a bride. There was nothing left to do. 
And I love this about Jesus. And here he is in the midst of this preparing. He knows that by the end of the Gospels, Jesus is going to offer and say, will you be mine? Here it is. Here's the engagement. And they're going to have to drink of that cup. And he tells us it's the cup of the new covenant. Now, please hear me. This thing is not about God recruiting soldiers and servants first and foremost. It is about God offering love. This is the one thing he said that he wanted all the way back in Deuteronomy 6. So when they're saying, hey, look, we're doing these rituals and we're doing these rites because we're seeking to repent. And Jesus goes, but look at what you're repenting for is to repent to me. And these guys have already gotten there. And if they're already there, there's nothing left to repent of. Now it's just an issue of resting. We repent till we get to Jesus and then we rest. Jesus goes, look at what we're doing. We're feasting. Why would you? Because there is going to be a time I will be taken away. And just as Jesus promised in John 14, that he's going to go and prepare a place for us. Well, that's where he is now. And that's our third thing. Ultimately, when he does, he's gone. He prepares and builds a place. And then what happens is the Nusim. The Nusim, by the way, it comes from the root word Nasa. And if you remember, that's the word for forgiveness. It means to lift off. And what happens is, is that ultimately the father will blow the shofar. He will blow the horn. Everyone will be gathered. And of course, he'll come on his litter and he'll pull his girl up. That's our harpazo, if you will, the snatching up. And he pulls her up so that the, everyone can see, this is my girl. Now, it's interesting because that's exactly what First Thessalonians 4 says. When it says that the Lord will descend from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. Why are we up there? Because he's going, this is my girl. To meet the Lord in the air, and therefore we will be forever with him. Encourage each other with these words. Let me ask you, do those words encourage you? They encourage me. So as I look at this, what I realize is Jesus bringing us back to the bridegroom. He's saying, this is a time of engagement, and we celebrate. Now, interesting, if it's three years, that tells us that this is the engagement of a king, which is perfect, of course, for the Gospel of Matthew. So with it, then, he gives us these two examples. I do find these examples quite interesting. Now, we could read through them quickly, but we could really miss the, the importance of what's being said here. Here's the two things. One is a garment. And the other is a wineskin. They're both coverings. That's clear. Now notice, by the way, he never says that you take a new piece of cloth and you strap it onto a new cloth or a new garment. Why? Because new garments don't have holes in them. An old garment's the problem. And the old garment, obviously, is worn. The old garment has holes in it. And that, by the way, becomes a problem because we're aware of the fact that garments do a lot more for us then just keep us warm. In a room like this, that's the primary function of the day. But they kind of tell you your vibe. They tell you what kind of person you are, your personality. I mean, Camden's a really good place for identifying that when people dress certain ways, you kind of get the idea that they're kind of certain people. It tells you a little bit about their wealth or lack thereof. Well, interesting, I was saying that when I was, a, when I was a kid, that wasn't that long ago, we earned our holes in our clothes we actually didn't. I mean, and by the way, that was like, that was a proud thing that we earned it. But today you buy clothes with holes in them and they're, it's more expensive. Somebody else had to do it. I mean, in those days it was sort of like, well, that just showed that you didn't have a lot of money. Today what it shows is you have enough money to get them that way. But you kind of know that certain tags and certain labels, they kind of tell you that you got money. And they also tell you who you might be most prone to hang out with, who your society might be. 
I mean, certain kind of clothing, especially when you're in secondary school, for instance, you kind of know when a person dresses a certain way, they probably are going to hang out with that crowd. I expect that. The reason I say that is, I mean, you can see that on a Sunday morning, you know, when we take the bus or the train to get to church. And you kind of know early on Sunday morning, most of the time, the people are either people that are going to work somewhere or people that are going to church somewhere. And you can watch the way they dress and you probably think, okay, that person's dressed in the nines. I bet I kind of know what church you're kind of going to. When this person's kind of wearing ratty clothes, I'm like, "Mm, you might be going to a Calvary Chapel. I kind of get that. And the reason I say that is, is that Jesus addresses this from the perspective of a garment, but he also just addresses it from the perspective of of a wine. Now, please understand this. I find what's interesting about these is that he tells us, you just don't do this. When it's an old thing, it has a problem, and so you want to patch it up. But it can't be patched up with anything new. The old has to be patched up with something old. There's the problem. It never says a new thing needs to be patched up because a new thing doesn't have holes. Find that interesting because when you get to the book of like Deuteronomy, for instance, 29, God speaks about his blessing, and one of the things he speaks about is keeping everything young. He says in Deuteronomy 29.5, he says that I led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. Nehemiah quotes that, by the way, in Nehemiah 9.21. But what I find most interesting about it is these are the two things that were used to deceive Joshua in Joshua 9. Are you aware of that? There were a group of people. And this group of people, by the way, lived near to, they were actually well, they were actually on the map to be conquered by Joshua and the people because they were that was land allotted to Israel. But they were afraid of it, and so they knew they had to sort of pull out a coup. So what they did is they, they took old wineskins and old clothing. They put on their old clothing. They took the old wineskins, and then they showed up to Joshua and said, we came from really, really far away. So you've got to make a peace treaty with us. What's interesting about it is that Joshua kind of goes, well, how do we know you're not just a neighbor and you're kind of playing us on this? And he goes, well, take a look at our clothes. And take a look at our wineskins. Which is interesting. What they said is they pretended like the garment was new. And then it got old on their way. They pretended like the wineskin was new. But it was actually an old one. And the reason I say that is I find this often the case. That often what you'll find is there are people who pretend like it's new wine and a new wineskin. But it's really the same old. And it's a new garment. But it's really kind of the same. In the end of it all, there's only two garments, and in the end, there's only two wineskins. There's an old one and a new one. And might I say, the same way, there's only two religions in the world. There is the religion of works, of good works, and there is the religion of grace. Now, grace is only Jesus. He's the only person who offers it. Mama does not offer it. Buddha does not offer grace. You can, at best, you can barter for mercy. But only Jesus offers grace. See, here's the difference. On the good works side, you have to do it and God then has to respond. On the grace side, God does it and we respond. It's very different. The whole thing flips. So understand, in the same way, what the Pharisees were doing is they were doing this old religion. This old religion of I do it and God responds. I'm going to pray and God's going to respond with something good. I'm going to give and God's going to respond in return. I'm going to tithe and God's going to respond. I go to church regularly, God's going to respond. In other words, I'm working for God and God owes me because of this stuff. On this side of it, God has offered me love and he died on a cross to pay for my sins. And he did all of this and he goes, now, will you take my love? I did all the work. You respond. And you just understand what Jesus is showing to John and the disciples of the Pharisees as well is, hey, look at you can't put grace in this old system. It doesn't work. 
Because what you're going to see is the old system could only be patched up and it's clearly lacking. It's clearly lacking. And so it has to be patched up with itself because the new stuff isn't going to work on it. It will pull away because it doesn't belong. It'll tear it up worse because it doesn't belong. And in the end of it all, you'll find this thing worse than when it began. And then I look and he goes, this is the same thing with wineskins. He goes, here's the difference. When wine is brand new, it expands as it starts to ferment. The sugars start to decay and that creates this fermentation and that causes it to expand. Now, understand what a skin is. It's an animal. It's usually like a goat or something like that. And basically, once you clean out everything else and gave the part that the Scots eat to God and, and then took the other parts and you ate it, what you were left with was a skin. And basically, you took that thing and you filled it up, and you sealed it up and you carried it around you. The, the legs were kind of the, the handles. And he goes, what happens is a new thing expands it expands with the thing that's expanding inside. And the, it says you need something that can handle the expansion, that can handle the movement. Now, when something gets old and it's all about tradition and it's all about you doing the work and God has to respond, the problem is it's brittle. Now, here's the thing. That old wineskin can still hold old wine. It can hold a lot of things as long as what's in it doesn't move. As long as what's in it is stagnant. And you can find this old system in such a way that you can still fill it full of old stuff and it won't do anything with it because it's not doing anything anyways. But the moment you put something in it that's really growing and moving, which God relates to his spirit, it's going to blow the doors off of anything that's just like, look at this is what we do because of tradition. Not because of the word, but because of tradition. And Jesus lays this whole thing out and he knows, now look it. Jesus isn't there to destroy this. He's there to fulfill it. And he goes, this old thing has beauty because it shows the promises that have to be fulfilled in one person. Jesus is, and I'm the person. Your repenting is to repent to me. Everything ends with Jesus. Jesus is not the means to another end. And there's the danger in my walk with Christ. Is Sometimes I can be like, Jesus, please just give me something. And I know that if I go to Jesus, I could get peace and I could get hope and I could get love and I could get, you know, I get all these things. But then Jesus is the means to the end. And once I get to the thing, I can leave Jesus behind. Versus, God, I need you. That's what I want is you. And there's the point in this. So when they're saying, look, at this is what we're looking for. I think it's interesting. Because they're like, you know, we're trying, we're working so hard. But what do we want in the end just to be right with God, to make sure we don't go to hell? Jesus is like the reason you're turning around and repenting so that you can find me. There's the point in it. But once you find me, then just rest. Rest in me. This old thing, it's never going to work. This whole thing where you have to make the motion. We, we're playing a game of chess and you take a step and I take a step. How about you surrender instead? That's this. That's grace. He goes, look at it. There's the problem with this. Interesting, by the way, the only other two times that you find wineskins of both times, by the way, speak of something grievous. Job speaks about it and it says his belly is like about to explode like an old wineskin. In Psalm 119, it says that in regards to something like a wineskin with smoke. It's brittle and ready to fall apart. This is what I feel like. And I look at this and I realize that what Jesus is telling us in all of this is that I want you to take my love. I want you to take, I'm making the motion. I'm asking you to respond and surrender. And then just be with me. I'll use you. I'll use you to challenge and to transform the world. But please understand, I have a whole new garment for you. 
And then I can't help but think that Jesus began his ministry reading a text. Do you remember that? He was in Nazareth. It was at a synagogue. Do you remember how where it began? Isaiah 61, it says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news or good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, and listen, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Did you see, did you hear the new liquid? The new wine is the oil of gladness. It's not just something where people can use it as a license to act stoned. Because the same Holy Spirit they're blaming that on says at least 13 times in Scripture to be sober. But what God wants is the oil of gladness. That's what he has. And the oil of gladness cannot fit within your workspace system. Mine either. And instead of the spirit of heaviness because of my conscious, constant consciousness of my sin, because of his forgiveness, he gives me the garment of praise. It says that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The rest of the chapter, by the way, what we'll find is it shows us the two garments or the two skins. There'll be the religious leader's daughter and the bleeding woman. There'll be the blind man and the mute man. And we'll see again in all of these cases, will it be by works or by grace? The last thing that Jesus says here, interesting in Luke 5, and I'll end with this and we'll go to prayer. He says, you know, we don't put new wine in old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But you put new wine in new wineskins, and both are preserved. Not the old wineskin is preserved, not the old wine. The new wine and the new wineskins are both preserved. But this is what he says in Luke to end that. He says in verse 39 of chapter 5, No one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says, the old is better. Often you can learn, by the way, for what it's worth, how old someone is by certain songs. You know, I mean, there, there are certain songs that I think they make it every generation. They, come, they kind of get revamped. And as they get revamped, you just ask them, which version do you like the best? More than likely, the version you like will be the one that was in your generation. I mean, every once in a while, you'll be like, well, that's a neat interpretation of the song. But chances are, oh, I remember when I was a kid, that was a great song. And then somebody else is like, oh, yeah, I remember in a band that you've never heard of, you know, something like, you know, spiked nose hair or something. Oh, yeah, I like their version. But they growl it. And you're like, what? That sounds terrible. But for them, that was their version because that was their that was their old thing. And for every one of us, we have an old thing and we don't desire the new because we're comfortable and familiar with the old. Here's the problem. If you were raised in a religious environment. Your old may actually be the old wineskin. For those of us that are new in Christ, that weren't raised in religion, if you will, for us, we may be actually responding to this thing, but for us, our old wineskin could actually just be that we feel like we can do whatever we want. And that's just as bad. 
But in both cases, what God wants is he wants to show us his grace and he wants us to respond. But we respond and surrender because that was what, by the way, look at what happened right before this. What you happened right before this was a man who was paralyzed, but by God's grace, he was raised, he was raised up. And then there was a guy who was completely a traitor, but by God's grace, he left that all and followed Jesus. And you realize, and what happened as a result of that? There was a feast because the prodigal has come home. His name was Matthew. And you realize in all of this, this is what God wants. Neither of them earned that. What they earned, by the way, was probably their condition. But what God gave them was grace. Now please hear me as we go to prayer. The Lord really, really wants today to revamp things with you. And what he really wants is intimacy with you. That's first and foremost. For all of the things that could paralyze you, the bitterness and the weirdness and the, the whatever, all the lies the enemy can throw at you. For all the things that can happen in our own lives in such a way so that we focus on our sin which could not possibly make us joyful. How could that not be the cloak of heaviness? But instead, he seeks to give us the garment of, of joy. or seeks the garment of praise. Now, as we go to prayer, for those of us who know the Lord, can we pray today genuinely? Can we pray, oh God, please make me somebody that is willing to let your Holy Spirit move in such a way that I am flexible to whatever you lead me in. Whatever that is. For some, that greatest act of faith is to go. For some of us, the greatest act of faith is to stay. But, you know, we need to be in this place where if God were to leave the room, we would be aware of it before our next breath. And you could get so caught up in our things and the way we do them that if the Lord weren't here, we might not even notice. And that's not what God intends. That is an old wineskin. But you know, this all starts with God making the first move. That's how this starts. And it starts with God before the foundation of the world. He wanted you. And he already worked out the deal, but the deal was going to cost him his life. And so when he came to earth, he had to pay that price for his bride. And Jesus came and he died on the cross for your sins and mine to buy us away from our debt, to to rescue us from our dishonor and to serve us. And his resurrection offers us a brand new life as he goes to prepare a place. The only thing that's left is whether we've said yes. Have you said yes to that offer? Have you said yes to this offer where Jesus says, look, I want you to be mine, but that's everything's been worked out except one thing, and that's your choice. You have to do that yourself. Well, that's what we are today. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for this text. I thank you for how you lead us and guide us. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you here in this room right now are seeking to address each one of us personally right where we're at. And to do that, Lord, we need to hear you. To do that, Lord, our hearts need to be open and recognize that we could get so caught up in an old way that it's inflexible to the way your spirit wants to move. Now, clearly, you'll never move against your scripture. But we don't battle you in that arena. We battle you in what we find comfortable the things that we find, well, that's just good enough. Where you have excellence and amazement and wonder planned. And God, I pray today for every one of us who have said yes to you. That God, we would be in this place that we would be willing and wanting for you, Lord, to move in us. To move in us, and that means move us off the couches of our comfort. To move in us, to move us beyond those things where, where we go, well, this is just kind of my little niche. 
to move us in a way so that we touch the world and that the world knows that you're good. So God, please, remove the old wineskins. Remove the old lifestyles and the old thought patterns and the old value systems and the old dreams and all the old things that are inflexible to the move of your spirit. And replace them now with a brand new life, a brand new covering of, of one God that says, where you go, I want to go. What you do, I want to do. So Lord, please, in the simplest sense, we want your presence to have preeminence in our lives. And we want to be completely surrendered to you. And here in this room, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've not said yes to this gift of Jesus, the payment on the cross, his resurrection, and his desire then for you to be his, he's paid the price. The only thing left is your yes. I'm going to pray a prayer. I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, yeah, yeah, that's mine. That's what I want to say today. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I am in debt. I'm in debt because of my sin and guilt. The wrong of my life has left me guilty before you. But you already knew all of that. Before you even worked out the deal, you knew all of that. And in working out the deal, you knew, Lord, to have me, you were going to take me, faults and all. But the debt needed to be paid, and so you volunteered by paying the price on the cross so that all my debt could be paid, all the sin, all the guilt. And just like Scripture promised, He died on that cross just like you promised. And just like Scripture promised on the third day, you rose again and offer me new life now. And I say yes. I say yes to that offer. You've done the work. I haven't had to initiate that. You planned it before I was born. The only thing you left me with at the end of it all was my choice, and I choose you. So have me now. Wash me clean and make me yours as I hand myself to you. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree... I ask you to say, Amen. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open the Word with you. For the honor of being able to be your pastor, or one of them here. Now, Lord, ignite our hearts now, I pray. To be people who are lit up for you as you would call us to be. Life changers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, go be blessings to each other.